Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Everybody, I'm Shelly. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank Jerry for feeding the very thing that I'm trying desperately to kill. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is great. There's people on here that I know uh, very well and a lot of new friends. And uh, this Zoom thing is an absolute crazy miracle. I, I, was, I was at a book study last night and we were reading the forwards. And if you haven't read the last couple of paragraphs of the forward to the fourth edition, which came out in, I think, 01, 02, 03, sometime around there. T- take a look at it because it was the first time I'd read it in a couple of years. And it really made me smile about the power of God and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, the times that we're, we're currently living in. Anyway, we're going to spend, you know, 45, 50 minutes talking about my favorite subject, uh, which is me. I hope you guys liked listening about me as much as I like talking about me. Um, I I always have three uh, things on my mind anytime I share my story in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, my goal is that I can entertain most of you. Uh, I'd like to inspire a couple of you and, uh, and only offend one or two of you. Uh, if you're on the list of, inspi- of, of entertained, that's great. Uh, if you're offended, call your sponsor. That's their job, not mine. Uh, but if you're inspired, next to my name is my phone number. It's not there for show. I love talking to alcoholics about Alcoholics Anonymous. We're all busy and time zones are interesting. So uh, it's always best to shoot me a text first. But uh, uh, I just, I'm so in love with Alcoholics Anonymous and, and what this program is, is, has done in my life in uh, in the last couple of decades. I am sober since July 17th of 1996. Um, my sponsor's name is Charlie H. And because of the power magic of Zoom, my current home group is the Hamosa Beach Men's Stag in Hamosa Beach, California. And, uh, um, you know, it became necessary for me to change home groups at the beginning of the pandemic. And the beauty was it didn't matter where the home group was. So I got to pick that one. And as we begin to go back to the normal life, uh, I will need to have a home group that I can stand at the door of and shake hands. So it's getting ready to change again. I don't know what it's going to be or what it's going to look like, but it's a continuation of the adventure. So I was born in England. I don't sound like it. I've been in America since 1984. I was 16 when I moved here. Uh, I've been here for, uh, I don't like to think about it. Holy cow, three quarters of my life. It's a long time to, to be somewhere. And my accent has gone away over the years. Uh, my brother, who, who is also in the States, but he moved here in his mid-30s, he still has a strong English accent. And he always tells me, that he thinks I lost my accent because I have no real personality of my own, which uh, it may be true. We're 
we're chameleons, aren't we? We we like to pretend to be things we're not so we can fit in to impress people we don't particularly like. It's one of the personality traits of the typical alcoholic. I was born in the north of England, a city called Leeds, to average parents. My, my folks are not alcoholic. My mom will have a glass of wine occasionally, a couple of times a year, Mother's Day and her birthday. I will push her to have the second glass because it's entertaining to watch her get giddy and silly. She never finishes the second glass. It's so wasteful. I mean, I keep trying to tell her there are alcoholics desperate for a drink all over the world, right? And, and you're letting this go to waste. It should be a crime for which you should be punished. My, my dad, uh, he told me he got drunk twice in his life. He said that it dulled his ability to enjoy the world. So obviously I was, I was raised by wolves, as you can, as you can tell. But, but my childhood was not idyllic. My, my dad split when I was two years old and, uh, uh, we're a Jewish family. And when he left, um, he was not able or didn't or whatever the reason was really pay his share. And mom moved us into section eight housing or the British equivalent into council housing. We signed on to the equivalent of welfare. We had all of the, you know, I'm a food stamp baby, the whole, the whole deal. And we moved into a non-Jewish neighborhood. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism in England, especially in the 70s. And I got in fights with my neighbors because I was one of the only little Jewish kids. I got in fights with the kids uh, uh, in the Jewish community because we were one of the few divorced families. And I lived in the wrong neighborhood. And I, I didn't like the kids I grew up with. I didn't, I didn't like my school friends. I, I, I was a charity case at a Jewish private school and, and, and uh, I felt judged for that. And I didn't like those kids. Obviously I didn't like the kids in my neighborhood because I felt the anti-Semitism. I didn't like my teachers. Uh, I didn't like my brother. Uh, my brother's two years older than me and he decided to take on some kind of a parental role, which when you're that age basically means you're a bully. I didn't like my mom. She would scream and yell a lot. I didn't like my uncles and my aunts. I didn't like my grandparents, my cousins. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know any of you at the time, but if I had, I'm sure I wouldn't have liked you either, right? I was just this uptight, kind of angry, on the muscle, life's not fair, nobody likes me, I don't measure up, kind of an angst ball walking around. Now, what's funny is that I only know that in hindsight, because when you're in that position, you don't really know anything's wrong. You just think that life sucks. The world sucks. It's not fair. You know, I'm badly done to, and, and I don't deserve this. And I just, so I'm nine years old. And uh, there's a kid that's two years older than me. His name's Barry. Barry uh, wants to drink. I want to hang out with the kid that's two years older than me. I'd have done anything he wanted to do. He wanted to drink, so we did. And uh, we got a bottle of uh, uh, cider, old English apple cider. Barry uh, took off the lid, took a swig, gave me the bottle. I took a swig. And I tell you, I remember exactly how it felt. Um, I used to say that it solved all my problems. And that's not really true. It made it to where I didn't care about my problems. My situations were no longer problems. It didn't matter anymore. And screw you if you cared. I certainly didn't care. I was able to breathe for the first time ever. And I'm a baby. I'm nine years old. And I think I found the magic elixir, the answer to life. And uh, I didn't get 
become a daily drinker. Uh, Mom was strict. It wasn't, you know, in the 70s in that community. But I probably got drunk two or three more times that year, a couple more times the next year. But by the time I was 14 years old, I was drinking something, taking something, smoking something every single day. And I and I want to briefly cover this. And I don't this might be where I offend the old timers, but I'm an alcoholic and I have alcoholism and it's the only disease I have. And Alcoholics Anonymous is the only program of recovery that is required for me to, to live a good life. But if you're like me and you're under 80, you might have done some drugs too. You know, and there's a great friend of mine that when he shares, he says, if he'd have known when they handed him that joint or that mirror that he was going to be speaking on Zoom in Atlanta from Las Vegas in 2021, he would have said, no, I can't do drugs because it's inappropriate if you're going to be a member of AA. But but he didn't know, so he took him. I didn't know, and I took him. And I and I, I sh- we shouldn't do drugs because we do them alcoholically. I I'm a pig, and I... I was drinking something, taking something, doing something uh, every single day. The reason that I want to mention it briefly, though, is because when I was new, there were some people that uh, would talk about singleness of purpose in a way that I misunderstood. I don't think they meant to confuse me, but I I misunderstood. Uh, And I understood it to believe that I didn't really belong in AA because I did drugs, too. And thankfully, some wise men put their arm around me and they said, Sheldon, membership in Alcoholics Anonymous requires at its basic level a desire to stop drinking. At a more complex level, it desires that you have suffered from alcoholism. It doesn't require that that's the only thing that's wrong with you. Look around the room. Everybody's got a lot of problems. The only thing that's required for you to be a member of AA is that alcohol has been a problem in your life. You want to quit and you can't and you're looking for help. And the fact that you did drugs means nothing to us at all. We want to try and help you put your life back together. And I was grateful for that because it allowed me to stay. It allowed me to be here with you. I'm 16 years old and I graduated high school. And uh, not because I'm smart, but because that's how old you are in England when you graduate. And I joined the family business. I, I, I signed on to welfare. And I got my own apartment and my own check. And I started partying. And it was wonderful. I had a couple of roommates and we drank and it looked like a frat house, even though none of us had ever been to college. And there was beer cans and and empty bottles. And it just looked like a 16-year-old's paradise. And my dad came to visit and it was, you know, he's this old Jewish dude looking at his baby son living in the slums like this. And he freaked out and he said, no, 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 no. We're going to pack you up, take you to Southern California. We're going to clean you up, sober you up. We're going to get you in college and you're going to become a lawyer or a doctor or something. Right. And uh, I didn't know much about lawyer and a doctor and I didn't know much about college. I certainly didn't want to get sober, but I had seen on television that Southern California had beaches, pretty girls, sunsets and I was in for all of it and so I packed my stuff and uh, moved to California shortly after I got there I heard of this little little rock and roll band called the Grateful Dead and I couldn't shake them they followed me everywhere and I just had a blast man I just did I heard someone say one time and I know it was a misquote out of the big book but I heard someone say one time 
that their worst day in Alcoholics Anonymous was better than their best day drinking. Now, the quote is that they wouldn't trade their worst day in AA for their best day drinking. I agree with that. But but I don't agree that my worst day in AA was better than my best day drinking. I had some great days drinking. I did. And I've had some shitty ones sober. I mean, I have, I have this beautiful son. He's, he's, he's about to turn 20 years old. But my wife, or ex-wife now, but wife at the time was pregnant five times. We saw five heartbeats. And then we were told on four of those occasions there was no baby. Those are bad days. I got, I said, ex-wife, I'm divorced. That's not fun. I've had business problems. That's not fun. My dad's dead. That wasn't a particularly good day. I mean, I've had some struggles and some strife and uh, public humiliation that some of you are aware of. Boy, that's no fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had some of that too. These are all bad days in AA. And I had some amazing days drinking. I remember being at a dead show in Shoreline Amphitheater at the back. The band's getting ready to play. Bobby yells out, it looks like rain. I'm on four hits of window pane. I'm having a spiritual experience, the likes of which no 12-step call has ever provided. I mean, it was magic, lightning in a bottle, fantastic. And if it was still like that, I would never come to you. I got very lucky. Uh, I was a fairground pitchman. Uh, selling Ginsu knives, oven cleaners, and kitchen gadgets at state and uh, county fairs all over the country. But wait, there's more. Uh, because of a of a, 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 a an earthquake that happened in California and a series of crazy things, I get picked up at 19 years old. Small company called Kenwood. They want me to be their national spokesperson. I have infomercials. I'm on QVC Home Shopping Network, Home Shopping Network Canada. I work three or four days every six weeks and I make stupid money and the rest of the time I'm free to party. It was the perfect drunk's job. It was wonderful. I did that for a couple of three years and then it caught up with me. Now the truth is I didn't really work for four days. What I did was I worked like five or six times for three minutes over a four day period. I'd go on live TV and do my spiel for a couple of three minutes. And then I'd go back to the hotel and I'd party and drink and I did that for three or four days every season. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I drank my way out of that job. I couldn't even show up for three or four minutes over a three or four day period every six weeks to keep that job. When they fired me, they they told me that it was because they didn't think it was appropriate to have an alcoholic crack addict as their national spokesperson, which I thought was an overreaction. Uh, but what are you going to do, right? It's their world. I think the real reason they fired me is because there was a guy there called Bernard, and Bernard didn't like Jews, right? And we always know why, and it's never our fault, right? And I've been able to wave the it's because you don't like Jews flag my whole life. I feel bad for the average white man. You have You have nothing to blame, right? I mean... Jews, other minorities, women, we have, we know who to blame. We know whose fault it is. You white guys, you're stuck. You have to take some responsibility. I never took any. It was all because they hated Jews. So anyway, I lose that job. I'm able to get another good job. I lose that job, another good job, lose that job. Next thing you know, I'm 25 years old and I'm selling cars and I don't want to sell cars. I had been doing it for a while previously before I got on QVC and uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was the only job I could get. And uh, I lose a couple of those jobs in a row, and I get another couple of jobs. And uh, 25 in my life doesn't work. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how I 
landing up this guy that can barely pay his rent, barely hold a job. After all, a few short years ago, I was the national spokesperson for Kenwood Appliances, for God's sakes. How does it happen? And uh, I found AA. I, I, I had a friend that got sober, and I went to an AA meeting. And um, from there, they took me to a detox, and from the detox to a halfway house. And uh, I was 25 years old, and I actually had hope. I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to get sober, put my life back together. Next thing you know, I'll have another TV gig, and uh, everything is going to be absolutely wonderful, and I'm, I'm very excited for my future. But what happened was different. What happened was I would be about, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 days sober, 20 days sober. I, got, I would typically get 10 days or so, but I, I 30 days twice. I lied about two days once. I... I got drunk the same day I promised I would never drink again many times. I went, what happened was I would not drink and I would get this empty, lonely, vacant. Uh, it was like I'd be taken over by a new personality. This Sheldon the Mope would show up. Oh, how are you? I suppose I'm fine. I don't know. I hate my life. I feel like Alcoholics Anonymous is punishment for my drinking. And I don't want to like you and I don't want to hang out with you. And I'm frustrated and I'm bored at best. And I just feel empty. And I'm just kind of this mope sitting in meetings. And you can tell that I'm not having a good time. And I don't know how to have a good time. I mean, I'm, I'm not drinking, you know, which I guess is something. But it's not really much because I feel so ugh. And at the same time, I get this noise in my head, and the noise in my head says, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink, you can have a drink. Why not? Have a drink, just take one. You deserve it. You've been sober for a while now. Come on, you can do it. Let's party. Let's get some relief. Let's enjoy ourselves. And this other voice joins in and says, you know, you're a piece of crap. You've always been a piece of crap. You're always going to be a piece of crap. You're not going to make it anyway. Why are you trying to stay sober? You've been trying to be sober now for a couple of years, and you keep doing it again anyway. What are you going to do? Stay sober for 10 or 15 days? Make us suffer this miserable vacancy? And then you're going to embarrass yourself, screw up, and drink anyway? Why suffer for the 15 days? Why not just drink now? Have a drink, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. You're a loser, you're a loser. Oh my God, my life sucks. And I'm in this situation and I don't know how to tell anyone. So when you say to me, how are you doing? I go, fine, I'm fine, how are you? Fine, fine, everything. But inside I'm just, ah, and I know something. If I could just find a way to take the edge off. See, there's an edge. And I just, what I need is I need a way to take the edge. I got a plan. Here's the plan. It's a good plan. You'll like the plan. It's a good plan. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to ruin my life. Why would I? I've done it so many times. You look at my life. I mean, Sheldon, seriously, you can't get drunk. But, but here's what you can do. You can have one, maybe two, three at the most, no more than four, no more than four, just to take the edge up to feel a little better. Maybe I'll tell the people at the meeting. Maybe I won't. Who cares? It's an anonymous program anyway, which means it's none of your business, right? But I'm just going to, I just, I just need to feel a little free. That's all I'm looking to do is feel a little free. What happens is bizarre. 
I have that one drink, maybe two, that third one, somewhere between one and four. So that takes in my mind. And I go from having that one drink to four drinks to throwing my life away. I burn my life to the ground one more time. There is no way for me to put the brake on, control it, or stop. I just, you know, I might once or twice be able to get away with it. Once or twice, I might be able to have only a couple of drinks. But on the whole, what happens is I burn my life to the ground. So I swear I'm never going to drink again. The plan didn't work. I'm not going to drink again. I'm not going to do it. I'll never drink again. And then in a state of abstinence, that feeling comes over me again. That emptiness, that loneliness, that frustration. And I'm stuck in a spiral. I'm stuck like a hamster on a wheel. I'm getting sober to get drunk to get drunk to get sober to get sober to get drunk. And I don't know what to do. And I'm 28 years old and I've run away to Las Vegas. And I stumble into an AA club. And in that club at that one noon meeting, a gentleman walks in. Now, they say that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And uh, I must have been ready because this man appeared. And he started to talk about drinking as being one of the problems. But the, the main problem for him, he said, started where the bag and the bottle ended. That in a state of abstinence, he felt so bad that it would drive him back to drinking again. And that he couldn't stay sober and he couldn't control the amount he drank. And I heard him. And that man was to become my sponsor and would be my sponsor uh, for the next 20 years. And that man saved my life. I, it's a debt I'll never repay. I'll never repay. We, we go to a book study at his house. Uh, we go to detox meetings. We, we fellowship. We have a home group. We get commitments. And we go through the steps. At the meeting of his house on Tuesday night, it's no longer there. The meeting is there and the house is there, but the view is no longer there. There used to be a spectacular view. They built across the road from his house, but the view used to be the whole city, the whole valley of Las Vegas. And we would, after the meeting, we'd go out and we'd stand and we'd look at the view and we'd talk. And uh, this new guy, John, asked me a question. And uh, he was new and I was new and he was kind of being a little snarky when he asked the question. Uh, but he said to me, what are you looking for in AA? And I, I, didn't, I didn't have an answer for him. And it, it struck me funny. I, I can't forget this. I, I started to cry. I just started to weep. And I felt like such a fool because I'm stood with these guys and I know I can't stay sober and I know I can't drink and... Uh, what do I want out of AA? And I think that if I could have answered the question, I might have said something like this. I would like to know that AA works. I would like to know that if I bought the whole package, did what you say, get a sponsor, get a home group, work the steps, pray and meditate, help new people. A cent of my life, where Alcoholics Anonymous is the, is the, the, the pinnacle, the the place where the nail in the middle of the wheel goes. If I would make Alcoholics Anonymous the axle of my life, that, uh, that, that it works. And, and what would that mean, that it works? 
uh, I think the answer to that would have been, you've been telling me that God is the answer to my sobriety, that if I can find God and a power greater than myself, I'll be okay. And I think the other thing that I wanted was I wanted to know God was real. And if you could have promised me AA worked and that God was real, I think I would have been happy. Now, I couldn't have formulated the questions. I didn't know the questions. But I think that's what I really desperately wanted to know deep inside. We began this journey through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step one was pretty easy. I mean, if you followed me around for the last 15 years or so, from 13 to 28, uh, one thing would be abundantly clear, and that is that I shouldn't drink. I'm not very good at it. Uh, I embarrass myself. I break things. I spill things. I spend more money than I have. I get in fights. I can't back it up. I lose jobs. I get arrested. I mean, you can add to the list that infinitum. It's pretty clear that I shouldn't drink. I I I I dig it right, and uh, I drink when I don't want to. I drink when I promised I wouldn't, and uh, and I drink more than I plan on, no matter what the plan is. And uh, it appears to me in conversation that I am powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over whether I drink it and I'm powerless over whether I don't. And I'm powerless over how much I drink and I'm powerless over alcohol. And the question of my manageable life, I think is simpler than in the past I have made it to be. In the past, I would try and talk to new people about their unmanageable life from a sober perspective. You know, I'm sober a number of years and my life's unmanageable. And that's not the step one question. That's a step six question. The step one question is much simpler uh, than we sometimes make it to be. When I ask a new guy if his life is unmanageable, what I mean is, is your life by design or does it just feel like it's happening at you? I mean, are you planning your life and things are going according to plan? Or are you a victim of circumstances? Do you, do you live where you want to live? Do you work where you want to work? Do you drive what you want to drive? Are you dating who you want to date? Is the relationship with your parents the way you'd like it to be? Are the warrants, the number and the degree that you have, a comfortable number for you? I mean, is it planned? Or are you a victim of circumstances? Because if you're a victim of circumstances and your life is happening at you, it may be a sign that nobody is really managing your life. And if they're trying, they're doing a terrible job at it. Maybe it's unmanageable. So I can do step one. 30-minute conversation, we're on step two. I can't do step two. I can't do step two because I don't believe in God. See, that's the problem with step two is I don't believe in God. I just don't believe in God. I told you I was born into a Jewish home, but it's a little weird because really it's an atheist Jewish home, which means we're Jews and 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 and, and we know we're Jews, but but we know we're wrong, right? Like we do all of the 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 traditional stuff and the ritual stuff, but there's no real talk of God in the home. We eat bacon when the non-Jews aren't looking. I mean, we just we 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 just we're just this kind of functioning like the only people on the planet that are more wrong than us are our crazy Christian neighbors. Those people are completely out of control. Now, I, I just want to point out that some of you, and I can only see some of you, but the ones I can see. Some of you laughed at the Jewish comment and you didn't laugh at the Christian comment, which is a signal that you have more work to do. You're still taking yourself far too seriously. 
and I suggest a little inventory, call your sponsor, you'll be fine. You'll get through this. It's not that big of a deal. But anyway, right? So I can't do the Jewish God, and I certainly can't do a Christian God. That's the one thing I learned from Judaism, absolutely. Imagine if you got sober in a Muslim country, and they said, God, as he may express himself in the group conscience, it might give you the creeps because you look around the room and you count heads and you know the consciousness ain't the same as yours. And uh, and I, I couldn't do my God and I couldn't do your God. And I was very confused. My sponsor said the craziest thing. He said, you don't have to believe in God to do step two. Which, you know, I mean, came to believe in a part greater than myself. Of course, you said, no, no, you know, you don't have to believe in God to do step two or step three. So what are you talking about? He said, look, as an experiment, why don't you go out to the people in the group that you like and ask them why they're sober? Well, that's stupid, right? I mean, everybody knows the answer. It may as well be written down on the back of a freaking card and handed out to people. If anybody asks you why you're sober, say this. I'm sober today because of a power greater than myself that I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today because of God that expressed himself in the group conscience, and I would like to thank AA for God, and I'd like to thank God for AA. Now, I don't mean to goof on that, because if you're new, I want you to know that I am sober today because of a power greater than myself that I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's because I took the steps that the power was revealed to me, and I'm grateful for that. And if I ever get to meet God, I'm going to tell him, man, sunset beaches, pretty girls, love them all. But that AA thing, man, that was the deal. That one was for me, and I, whew, right? But I go back to my sponsor, and I tell him, no, they all said because they're sober because of God. And he asked me a dumb question. He said, if you could find God in step two or step three, why the hell would you do step four? I mean, seriously, it sucks. Ask anyone. Go to an open discussion meeting and bring up the topic of step four. They're all going to go, oh, my God, it's terrible. And then they're all going to give you different ways to do it, right? If you go out of the big book, people will tell you it's a four-column inventory. Others will tell you it's a five-column. My guys write a six-column inventory. Some guys will have a workbook, and they want you to follow the questions in the workbook. Other people will go to the 12 and 12, and they'll claim this you know, 500 questions in the 12 and 12 that you need to answer. The most prolific man on the planet that helped more people than anybody ever didn't use any of the literature. He wrote his own six questions that he had you answer. And he did it completely wrong, but he still helped more people doing it wrong than anybody else in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's hard to knock that. So step four, here's what I know. It's very, very confusing. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. So why would I want to do that, right? Five is embarrassing. It's humiliating. You don't, you deny everything. You don't write it down, right? Six and seven, they're the flyover steps. Nobody understands six and seven. Eight and nine are incredibly expensive. I'm not interested in that. Ten and 11, so confusing. Half the people in most meetings of AA think they're doing step 10 when they're really doing 11. It's very confusing. And step 12, just gets in the way of whatever is on Netflix. Let's be honest. With all these new streaming services, there's always something better to do than talk to some puke. So if I could find God in step two or step three, I wouldn't do the rest of the steps for God's sakes. But it says having had a spiritual awakening is a result of these steps. So I got to do all these steps to have the awakening. And then he took me to the part in the big book that is the working part of step two. How do you work step two? 
some of the best writing in, in, in AA is in that portion of the big book that is step two. And there is a solution and, and more about alcoholism and, and we, we agnostics. There's some amazing stuff in there. But the actual work your way, how do you take step two? It says we need to ask the new member one simple question. Do you now believe or are you even willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? That's the question. Do you now believe or are you even willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? How do I know you don't have to believe in God to do step two? Because it says, do you now believe or are you even willing? It wouldn't say, or are you even willing? It would say, do you now believe in God? If not, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go back and smoke crack until you're a little bit more reasonable, punky. And when you are, and we talk about God, and you're beaten enough enough, you'll say, yes, I'm willing. But it doesn't say that. It says, do you now believe? No, I don't. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. Or choice number two, are you willing to believe that maybe just maybe there might be a God? I mean, there probably isn't, right? I mean, gun to the head, no God. I don't believe in God. But I'm willing to believe that maybe, just maybe, perhaps. I mean, I doubt it. Trust me. I don't think so, right? I mean, I don't believe. You understand I don't believe in God. But is it possible, Sheldon, that maybe, just maybe, there might be a power greater than yourself somewhere in this universe, even though we're not going to define it, and we're certainly not going to say it's definitely real, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, there might be a God? I don't have to believe in God. No, no, don't have to believe in God. But I just have to say that I'm willing to believe that maybe it's possible that there might be, although it's unlikely and I doubt it, there may possibly might be a God. Yes, that's all you have to say. As soon as a man says he does believe in God or is even willing to believe in a power greater himself, we emphatically inform him he's on his way. What does that mean? Emphatically. Yeah, baby, done. Step two in the bag. All I have to do is not close and bolt the door to the idea of God, but be willing to believe that maybe, just maybe, it's possible there might be one. Okay, what do I do now? Say the prayer. Say the goddamn prayer. Say the prayer. Do a third step. Won't that make me a hypocrite? Yes. Sheldon, you have a list of problems, some of which are going to kill you. Right? Hypocrite is on the list, but it's pretty far down the list. Let's not worry about that now. Let's say the goddamn prayer. And here's what he talked about was he talked about what Sam Shoemaker, not an AA member, but a great friend of Bill's, said when he, in AA Comes of Age, when he talked about uh, uh, AA as being the scientific approach to spirituality. He said, I want you to act as if God exists. Take the actions of a man that believes that God exists, and let's just see if your life gets better. Let's just check it out. You take the actions of a man that believes in God, even though you don't, but act like it. You know what I mean? Be kind, courteous, honest, uh, helpful. You, you know, we all know, we all pretend because we're new. We're like, well, I don't even know what spiritual principles are. You, you're a liar. Yes, you do. You just don't want to be nice. So be nice. And let's see if your, if your life gets better. Because you're behaving correctly. And if it does, we can say God exists. And if it doesn't, we can say God's obviously a lie because it didn't get better. But take this this test, if you like. And I started to behave as if God existed. And then and then I wrote the list. I wrote the list and I shared the list. I wrote the list and I shared the list. No new information. Wrote the list, shared the list. Six and seven, listen, if you do a good fifth step, coming out of your fifth step, when somebody says to you, okay, so 
we admit that you have a lot of problems. I have a lot of problems. Those problems have caused you to be suicidal and depressed. Yes, suicidal and depressed. Are you willing to have God remove them? Yes, everyone. That's why step five, six, and seven of the flyover steps. Because you can't come out of a fifth step and be like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know my selfishness has almost killed me, but I'm not willing to let God have that one, right? You just can't, right? You just can't. Of course, we're all willing to give God everything, right? Seven, we humbly ask him, right? And eight and nine, we stop making the amends and straightening out the past. And then we come into 10 and 11. I'm the I did it again guy. That's who I am. I'm the guy that in step five saw that every boss I ever had, I disrespected them. I thought I was smarter than them. I dismissed their direction. I was arrogant enough to come late and leave early. I stole paper clips and paper. And I'm three years sober and I'm on my sponsor's couch. And he said, what's wrong? I said, well, and I'm not even in denial now. I'm like, I did it again. What do you mean? I was disrespectful to my boss. Again, another boss? I know. I just, I don't mean it. I just, I've got this disrespect Tourette's when it comes to bosses. The shit just falls out of my mouth. I can't stop myself. You yelled at your girlfriend again? I did. I did. I didn't mean to. She just, you got to understand what it's like to be with this woman. What do you mean to be with her? When you met her, you said she was a prince. Princess, what have you done to her? How much damage could you have done in a few years to turn her into the woman you now describe? She was perfect, perfect. I did it again. I did it again. I spent more money than I had again. I got in a fight with a coworker again. I almost judged myself out of another home group again. I did it again. I remember showing up at my sponsor's house a couple of years sober. He lets me in and he, what's wrong? And I'm describing this life with this company I work for that is, uh, they don't respect me and they don't take care of me and they don't look after me and they're always about to fire me and they're just, just a horrible company and I've inventoried it and I can see that it's all me. I can see it. That none of the things in my head are true. It's on paper. We, her, the friends, the family. I'm doing what we agreed I wouldn't do anymore in step five. Why? Why? Over and over again. Inventory after inventory. I'm doing it again. What he said to me was, he said, I think you have a step six problem. I said, what? Yeah, step six. I said, don't be silly. I did step six. I'm on 10 and 11, paying back the amends, working with newcomers. What are you, nuts? He said, I kind of laughed at me. He said, you know, step six is the story not of my sobriety. That's step one, but of my serenity. That to the extent at which I'm willing to take these character defects that have been identified over and over again, and you may have a long list. My list is short. Selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, inconsiderate, dishonest, and afraid. That they can all be boiled down to that. And if I'm really honest, afraid, afraid, afraid. That driven by fear, I behave in ways that I believe will protect me, that cause damage in my life. 
you said that 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 step six is the action of step three and that your goal is not just to take the actions of a man that believes in God, but your goal is to realize that without God in step six through trying, you can't fix yourself. And then not with pious humility of, oh God in heaven whom I adore, please remove from Right, but with with humbling, God, I can't do this. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to behave. I don't know what forced humility to beg God to help a guy like me be a better man. I got to tell you, I'm a little pissed off at God, to be honest, because uh, God's God. God's God. I mean, right? He's God, and I've been begging Him for 24 years to make me wonderful. Right? And I have. I don't want to keep making the same mistakes. I've been begging him to make me perfect. And he doesn't. And he could. And why doesn't he? Kind of pisses me off, to be honest. And then, in reconsideration, what would happen if he made me perfect? What would happen if I was no longer judgmental, short-tempered, driven by insecurity, fear, selfish, self-seeking, inconsiderate. What would happen if none of these things caused me problems in my life? I don't know about you, but I have experienced because of I've had some really good runs where things have worked out pretty well for me. And you know what happens in the good times? I back off on prayer. I back off on step 10 and 11. I back off on meditation, that if God rendered me perfect, the prayer would stop. Perhaps my humanness, my imperfection, my brokenness, my flaws are the greatest God got, the gift God gives me because it drives me back into his arms. Perhaps the whole goal of six and seven isn't to become perfect. It's to admit that I'm human, admit that I need him, and turn to lean on him more and more in my brokenness. Maybe it's the gift. This last year has been interesting for all of us. It has been interesting for me too. Uh, I told you that I had a divorce. It was in 2019, it was finalized. The drama was in 18. The drama went like this. Some of you are about to hate me, but it's just the facts of what happened in my life. I was in a marriage that had become a partnership, a good partnership with a good woman, but a sexless, loveless partnership. I wanted more. I didn't know how to get it. I wasn't man enough or strong enough to ask for a divorce. So I cheated on her and then my marriage crumbled. And, and because of that, because of that, I was publicly humiliated a little bit within our home group. People around me uh, built a pedestal against my will underneath me and then were mad at me for leaping off it. And uh, it happened, but it was a tough, 19 was a tough year. I opened a business that has really been on life support. It's it, Honestly, we operate payroll to payroll. My sponsor's direction is this. When payroll comes due, if you can make it, stay open. If you can't, close the doors. It's the only thing that matters is paying your people. And so as payroll approaches the end of the cycle, 
for, for, for this month, uh, yesterday it ended, we can make payroll. And hopefully we can make payroll at the end of the month. And it's been a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, and it's been very difficult. So this, is, this has been an interesting time. Uh, beginning of April, right after the p- pandemic started, I had a uh, undiagnosed hole in my heart. Uh, it's a child, it's a birth defect. It had been there my whole life, but never diagnosed. It allowed a blood clot to slip through a hole that caused a stroke, that caused a seizure. In the seizure, I shook so hard, my L4 vertebrae exploded, and they didn't know if I'd ever walk again. And uh, my spinal cord had massive stenosis. I was on a walker, and uh, I had to come to work. So I turned one of the offices into a bedroom, and I slept at the office, and I put a laptop over my lap and and did all this in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, I'm in prayer meditation. Shortly after all this is accumulating. And I get overcome with a spiritual experience. Palatable. You could taste it. You could see it. It was palatable. It lasted four or five minutes. The effects have lasted ever since. And it was a calmness. And the guy's sponsor pushed me and asked me to explain to him what it really felt like. If you've had one... I only had a couple like this in my whole sobriety, a lot of mini experiences, but only a couple like this. This is all I could tell him. I knew something I'd always known. I knew it clearer perhaps and deeper perhaps, but I knew something I'd always known. And this is what I knew. I knew AA worked. I knew AA worked when you were newly sober. I knew AA worked when you saw five heartbeats and only had one baby and had four late miscarriages. I knew AA worked. I knew AA worked when my dad died. And I knew AA worked when I had business problems. And I knew AA worked when I had surgery in 2012 that went wrong. And I knew AA worked. And I knew AA worked when my stepdad got sick. And I knew AA worked when the pandemic hit. AA works. I knew AA worked when my business almost failed and my marriage did. I knew AA worked. And I knew laying in that bed, not knowing whether or not I would walk again, that no matter what the future was, that AA worked. And what did that mean? It meant that God was real. See, we're on this journey together, taking this individual weird spiritual experience where we're all kind of different and separate and discombobulated and we're all different religions and different faiths and it's private and it's personal, but we do it together in unison, holding hands on the broad highway. And the one thing that our spiritual experience has in common and everything else can be different, is that we know AA works. God is real. So if I can leave you with anything tonight, if you're new or if you've been around for a while, or if you forgot or if you just want to agree with me because you heard something you already knew, so you knew it was right, AA works. God is real. I'm grateful you guys chose to spend this time with me. Thank you for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.